You can be seated. If you are a child aged three to ten, you're released to go. If you're three or four, you're going to go back toward Mr. Josh, waving his hand. Miss Liz there. If you're ages five to ten, you're going to go over to see Miss Miss Katie, Miss Mandy. Worship will continue now in the Word, and I encourage you, please, if you have your Bible, open up to John chapter 4. There's a Bible, if you don't have one, there's a Bible behind or on the back of the seats. There may be one within reach, and if you see one but can't reach it, I'll bet someone would hand it to you if you would just signal or ask. My name is Kerry Olson. It's my privilege to preach the Word of God today. This sermon is the second in a short series that Pastor Josh introduced last Sunday, and I know that some of you weren't here. I think a number of you may be visitors because you've come down to the beach um, after a very long winter time, and we're glad you're here. You are welcome. Last Sunday, Pastor Josh introduced by preaching this, introduced this series by preaching from John chapter 3, the encounter of Nicodemus with Jesus. And for the next few weeks, we're going to take some time away from our series of Ephesians. This is what he said last week. As we approach Easter Sunday, we'll take a look at four unique encounters of women and men who stood face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Josh continued, and this part is really important, so listen up, please. Jesus is the most unavoidable person in human history. We cannot skate by him. He cannot and must not be ignored. What you believe about Jesus changes everything. But the identity of Jesus and our, both the identity of Jesus and our response to him are the most important things in this life. It changes our decisions. It changes the way we think about our families and our relationships, our jobs and our money, our time and our leisure, our pain and our grief. Jesus changes everything. Jesus has something to, to say about uh, all these things to all of us. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be asking, who's Jesus? What has he done? What does he say about us? And what are we to do about it? And then Josh preached about Nicodemus. And today, an outcast woman encounters Jesus in John chapter 4. And I would like for us to pray before I do that, uh, you may not be accustomed to looking in the eye of a preacher, but would you look at me and then consider this question. Are you willing to listen carefully to the word and allow God through his word, allow the son of God through his word 
to spotlight your heart, your soul. And it occurs to me just now, would you withhold passing judgment on the Samaritan woman at the well? And even receive this challenge that we, apart from the grace of God, are all like her. Our sin du jour might not be hers. Will you do that as we pray? Thank you so much, Father, for your word. Thank you that your word prescribes for your church gatherings of worship. We thank you for gifts of music, declaring scriptural truths, making much of your glory and lifting up Christ. We thank you that the word of God is so important in worship. It is because it, it reveals you. And so I pray for this grace to abound to us today that you would address each of us through the truth of your word in a way like Jesus addressed the nameless woman at the well in Samaria. Would you show us our need? Will you show us where sin and idolatry have dominated in our lives or where we've tried to sort of have a hybrid experience where we've got this religious commitment to God, but we have these other idols that are really important to us and they're competing for our affections. And would you grant to us that we would see the glory of the gospel of Christ and embrace him. Call people to yourself, O oh Father, in Christ Jesus today. Renew others in this room in Christ Jesus today. Let us hear the gospel and be set free today. We rejoice in you, dear Jesus for who you are, for what you do, for what you've done and will continue to do among us, for your thorough commitment of obedience to the Father. We who know you benefit so much from that. You bless us because you went for the, to the cross. You died our death. You bore our sins. You gave us life that is really life raised from the dead. We anticipate with great joy in two weeks the celebration of your resurrection. 
Give us ears to hear, O Lord. Help. Oppose distraction. Help us hear what you have to say and help me. Such a massive text. So overwhelming for me. So help me. You be the one who speaks through me. In the strong name of Christ, amen. Are you in John 4? I will not read the text first. I'll just count on you to follow along. So with your Bible open or your device ready, follow with me. We find in the first three verses of chapter 4 that Jesus had decided to leave Judea and go to Galilee. And while we don't know with certainty what verse 1 is all about, and there are opinions about this, we can be certain that the Lord was not making just some strange willy-nilly choice. He wasn't running away from potential conflict with the Pharisees. We see in other places in the Gospel, his time had not yet come. And in part that means that it, it, his time had not yet come to, to, to openly expose himself to the, to the scorn of the Pharisees and ultimately go to the cross. He wasn't afraid and we know this because at the end of John chapter 3, 31 through 36, and by the way, you remember this, don't you? Chapter divisions are artificial. They're there just to help us. But in the, in the flow of the, of the text, there is no number 4 with that chapter. But when you take a look at verses 33 through 36 of chapter 3, and especially 35, you'll see that the Son of God, Jesus, had charge over his circumstances. He knew what he was doing. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, including his travel plans. And then this. This is an amazing verse. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, the editors who put the verse divisions in there chose to isolate this, and I think that's really cool. He chose to go from Judea to Galilee northward through Samaria. There were other routes around Samaria, but there's a big backstory, and it's very important. About 750 years before Christ's foot journey through Samaria, the Lord God had had enough of his people, Israel, northern, especially northern tribes. And he leveled his just judgment against the nation of the Israelites because of their persistent and, and gross, at least in divine eyes, gross practices of worshiping false gods, disobedience to God, and unrepentant hearts. They had divided affections. 
They would have thought of themselves as worshipers of God, but they preferred idol worship. They, they wanted to blend in. They wanted to be a, a part of the greater culture. And so an instrument of God, the, the superpower Assyria, invaded and defeated Israel and carried off most of the population. And then Assyria flexed their muscles and re resettled the land with, with other people groups who brought their false gods with them. And over time, the Israelites, who had escaped being carried off, intermarried with those from these resettlement groups. Those groups, of course, brought their own gods, small g, and the worship of false gods along with pretentious so-called worship of God because eventually there was a competing temple that was built for the worship of the true God, or so they said. The worship of false gods continued and ultimately the unique identity of the Israelites was lost. And by the way, um, we know from the scripture, I'm thinking of the prophet of Isaiah, God is the only one true God and he will not tolerate competition from the little gods, the false gods. And he comes right out and says, I am God and there is no other. There is no other. And these people who had intermarried and had babies and generation after generation went by became known as Samaritans. You can look at 2 Kings 17. There's lots more detail there. And the Jews in the south in Judea hatefully despised these people, these Samaritans. They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't even set foot in their territory. So they would, they would, they, they, they would walk extra miles so they didn't go near Samaria. They saw those people as inferior to them. They saw them as heretical, impure, half-breeds, godless, unworthy people. They were outcasts from God's people. And yet, our text says in verse 4, he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. For him, it was a matter of purpose. It wasn't that he just wanted to save time. There was no lady on Google Maps telling him where to go. He had a purpose, and his purpose was evangelistic and missional. So here's a direction that we could go with the text. If you're a believer in Christ, Jesus models an approach to evangelism here in chapter 4. But I'm not going there. You'll have to write that sermon and preach it to yourself. And again, I conclude this, that he had a purpose and that it was a missional purpose because of the breathtaking truths that are found in verses 31 through 36. He comes from above is above all, verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet 
No one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Even a nameless Samaritan woman. And then listen to this in 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's gospel there. And not, not too far from that into chapter 4, he had to pass through Samaria. I love that. At least one other pastor in preaching on this text has said that Jesus is a soul hunter. And he is. And we who know him can thank him for that. Because he came hunting us and chased us down. John 4 describes Jesus this way. As a purposeful missional savior. John 4 tells us who he is, what he's about, and what he does. And ultimately, ultimately, that mission will take him to the cross. He's on a mission to call sinners to eternal life and to believe on him and obey him and be delivered from God's wrath against sinners. He delivers us by his death on the cross in our place. And here's just a very brief word of application that I want to tuck in here. It's for those of us who trust and love Christ and want to walk in obedience to him. Ask yourself this, do I live purposefully and intentionally planning and looking for ways to speak of the gospel of Christ with those who don't know him? Even those that I don't know yet, that you don't know yet, even those who are very different than you are, as different as a nameless woman at the well of Samaria was from a Jew, the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you live purposefully and intentionally that way? And we see that Jesus and his disciples began hiking toward Galilee toward or, or via Samaria. Obviously, they arrive safely. They come to a village called Sychar in Samaria. They had been walking, and obviously they'd been striding out. I read somewhere that they walked probably about 20 miles, and at noontime, they arrive at Sychar, and they stop to rest at a well, Jacob's Well, it's called, about a half mile out of town. Jesus was wearied, the text says. The original language word means exhausted. It means sweaty, spent. So he sat down by the well. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's a human. He's a man. He gets tired. He gets thirsty and hungry and sweaty. The Bible is clear about this. He's a man. He's a human being, but more than that, and much more, he is God, the God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man, 
And the only one who could bear the sins of sinful people, the only one. And now here comes the encounter. Look at verses 7 and 8. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then it says, parenthetically, John adds this, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They went to McDonald's there, and um, they served dates and olives and lamb burgers. I don't know. I hope you can appreciate how unusual this scene is. It was a daily task for women of this time and that region of the world to fetch water for their homes. They had to do this because water was life to them and their families. And they didn't have running water. Do you know how used to having running water we are? When we don't have running water, we automatically go to the tap and, huh, what? Oh, we don't have water. They didn't have running water. They didn't have bottled water. They didn't have this silly designer water. So ladies would, sorry if you feel judged there. So ladies would carry their water jars and walk to the well to get water, usually in the cool of the day, oftentimes in the evening. But this lady, this nameless Samaritan woman, is alone at noon getting the water in the heat of the day. She's an outcast woman among outcast Samaritans. I don't have time for this, but compare her to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Nicodemus, an elitist, a Pharisee, curious about Jesus, goes and seeks him out. The Samaritan, whose name is not given and has quite a reputation in, in the community, comes by herself at noon and runs into Jesus. There's all kinds of similarities and contrasts if you take the time to make that comparison. She finds a Jewish guy sitting at the well in forbidden territory in, in Samaria, and it just wasn't supposed to be. It, it couldn't have computed very well for her. And it's Jesus who initiates conversation with her. Jewish men weren't supposed to be like this. They were considered to be superior to women, and they wouldn't associate with women in public, let alone converse with them. And for seriously religious Jews, this restriction was to guard against the onset of lustful thoughts. I, I read this amusing detail. I think it was from John MacArthur. There were pharisaical types, real serious religious types, who if they saw they were about to walk near a woman in public, would close their eyes and flee as quickly as they could. And as they went, they would bump into stuff. And they would injure themselves. And they were known as the bruised and bloody Pharisees. And they wore those marks pridefully. 
But Jesus was not constrained by uh, Jewish racial and religious biases. So he talks to her, give me a drink. And with that introduction, the interaction ensues. We learn much more about this woman and about Jesus. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Aren't you out of line, Mr. Jew? You aren't supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be anywhere near a Samaritan, especially a woman, and you ask me for a drink? She's, I think she's trying to push off any further interaction. Jesus, though, is undeterred. He forges ahead on the theme of water and addresses her about a different kind of water. Not the water out of Jacob's well. Something entirely different. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, two really important words here, or phrases, gift of God, what is it? And who it is that is saying to you, who is it? Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What's that? The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she doesn't get it. She's not on the wavelength of Jesus at all. She's just in a, a narrow little, little experience of, of her senses only. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, never be thirsty forever. Isn't that a great phrase? Never forever thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. So you see, she's still not with him. She only wants relief from having to haul water every day. Who wouldn't? And to have her thirst always quenched. She's not able yet to comprehend that Jesus is no ordinary Jewish man and that the gift he's offering is the living water of salvation and life that's really life, eternal life. And in another place in the Gospel of John, I think I'll mention this later in the sermon, uh, the presence of the Spirit of God. Salvation, life, eternal life, the presence of God in her. So then Jesus takes what appears to be an abrupt turn. He changes the subject. He zeroes in on her need, on her sin. And in doing so, he begins to reveal his identity as well. So look at verse 16, please. Go. See how it Sudden this is, from living water 
to a command. Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. He already knows this. He's God. So we've seen him now, haven't we? We've seen him as a human being who gets tired and sweaty and hungry and thirsty. He's God, the God-man. This is really important for all of us to grasp. He is a person. He's not just a set of ideas or an ideology, a religious category. He's a person, the God-man. Go, call your husband and come here. And Jesus said to her, or she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. But he's also letting her know, you don't, you're not telling the whole truth here. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She withholds the whole truth about her life because she's ashamed. She's been found out by a stranger. She's been alienated. She is a serial adulteress and divorcee. She's an outcast among the outcast Samaritan people. She went to the well alone because other women didn't want to be with her, and she didn't want to be with them. Jesus knows all about her. It makes her very uncomfortable. So she tries to evade him and brings up religious differences between Jews and Samaritans. Notice this, will you please? She has religious knowledge. She's religious. Verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. There is so much here. We don't have time to cover all of this. You know I love to recommend books, Desiring God, the chapter on worship really is helpful in understanding all that I've just read. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not on this mountain or that mountain. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. 
And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. She's still trying to push him off. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, the text says, I am. I am being the name of God. The, the pronoun he is added just for the fluidity of the text. I who speak to you, I am. You see, do you feel it? How enormous this moment was? I pray it's an enormous moment for you. God's Son reveals himself as Messiah, the expected one, the, the Christ. Later in the text, he's called the Savior of the world, and the woman gets it. That's, that's, that's more than an educated guess. She gets it. Only God could know all about her as he did. So she resisted no more. She sees and believes in Jesus. And here's how we know this. Look at verses 27 through 30 of John 4. Jesus says, I who speak to you, I am. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. I imagine her being absolutely thrilled. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out. They went out of the town and were coming to him. So imagine this. This woman who sort of... Hmm, walked the alleys and walked along the walls and got out of town to go get her water so she wouldn't have to be confronted with women who scorned her. Comes into town and announces to anybody who will hear, you will be amazed. I met Christ. Come, see this man. He... He knows all about me. He told me all that I ever did. And meanwhile, the disciples were saying, eat something. We, we went to McDonald's. Look at 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. That's why we know she met Christ and believed and was rescued. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Immediately, this lady became a disciple maker. She's, she's rescued from, from her sin, from her hybrid religion, and she makes disciples. Come see Jesus. So ask yourself, what, what difference does this recorded encounter with Jesus make for you? I want to remind you of 
the stated purpose of the Gospel of John, found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And I'm sure he said many other things than those that are recorded in John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Living water. Inspired by the Spirit of God, the Apostle John wrote the record of, of the Samaritan woman encountering Jesus at the well so that you, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world and have life in his name. So the question is, do you believe this? Will you receive the gift of living water from Jesus? The forgiveness and the cancellation of your sins against God and the transfer of the righteousness of Christ to your account. That's what happened when Jesus went to the cross as your substitute. For all of us who will turn from sin and trust only in Christ. But you must turn. You must believe and trust. Not in yourself, but in Jesus for your salvation and rescue and for Real life that is eternal life. I have three other things to say. First, all of us are like the woman at the well. Because apart from God's grace, we are all sinners against God. The Bible says not one of us is righteous. Not one. We fall far short of his standards of holiness and our sin, like the woman of Samaria, is really rooted in idolatry. Not only people like Samaritans, half-breeds, not only third world primitive tribal people are idol worshipers, all of us, apart from God's grace, are idol worshipers. Is maybe more subtle in the 21st century, but it's idol worship. And that is at the root of sin. The seed of our sins is the idol of self. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, who in their myopic self-insistence, something fall off? No? Sorry. This is really important. I'm sorry. This idol of self goes all the way back to Adam and Eve who in their myopic self-insistence exalted themselves over God by disobeying, disobeying clear instructions for life and in so doing chose alienation from God and death. Their presenting idol was the pleasure of having it all. They could have had anything in the garden except for fruit from one tree, just one tree. 
but they wanted it all. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to be God over their lives. They wanted to eat attractive, tasty-looking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and be like God. And God had specifically forbidden it. And we know that the woman at the wells presenting idol was having more men. It, it was for her own security, probably for her own survival. Men, husbands, boyfriends, just like ancestors who drank from the stale, sickening waters of idol worship that are described in the prophets, forsaking the Lord who is identified in that Old Testament, those Old Testament text as the fountain of living waters, she repeatedly went to the idolatrous well of men. That one didn't work out. I'll dip in the well again, and here's another one. She did this in order to feebly attempt to slake her soul thirst and her deep longing for soulish, spiritual peace and fulfillment, and it didn't come. What she got was deadness of soul, alienation from God, marginalization by her community, and she had in store for her the penalty of eternal death and separation from God unless the Lord would have mercy on her, and he hunted her down and had mercy. Her desperate need was for living water, and when Jesus offered that gift to her, she received it. She believed him. So how about you? Think about this. In this moment, when through his word, the holy, uh, through, through his holy word, the Lord Jesus says to you, go, call your husband and bring him to me. Go, call your husband and come back. And you know that he sees everything about you and you cannot hide from him or bluff him. What is he calling you to bring? For her, it was a boyfriend. What's he calling on you to bring and leave and lay down? What are the presenting idols that belie your self-worship and disregard for God's rightful, rightful place of authority in your life? Will you be honest with him and with yourself? Will you admit your sinful dependence on wells of stale, stagnant, sickening waters and receive Jesus' gift of living water, salvation from sin, and eternal life? Will you trust in Jesus? He is the living water, the person the man, the God-man, is the living water. He's the good news. Will you drink the living water? He will give you himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 37. Here's what it says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is what he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So I, I'm urging you, with everything that I have, bring your sins, bring your self-idolatry, leave them and come to him in faith. 
I love how that word come is found in this text in John 4. Secondly, when you come, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm flying at 35,000 feet here, just, just looking at this very briefly, the idea of true worship. When you come, turn your idolatry into true worship of the Father. Because it's through Jesus Christ, God the Father sought you and pursued you to be a worshiper of him. Think of Christ as a recruiter of, worships of the one true, worshipers of the one true God. Only Christ can open the way for you to come into the presence of God and present yourself as a worshiper, to truly worship God and fulfill the purpose for which he made you in the first place, which is to give glory to him. And that's not a laborious thing. I used to use this illustration a lot. Do you know when thoroughbred horses are happiest? It's when they run. They're bred for that. Do you know when human beings are happiest and most joyful, not only now but for all of eternity? It's when they fulfill the purpose for which they were designed and made. And it's to give glory to God. And Jesus makes that possible. And third, I'm addressing believers now. Having received the living water of Christ by faith, does your life proclaim, and do you even plan for this to happen? Proclaim to those around you, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Does your life say, yes, this is the Christ. Come to him. He's the God-man. He's the only one who can save us. Oh God, there's so much here. So take what I've said and speak to people in this room. Grab a hold of the attention of people who are far from you, who are stuck in a condition of self-worship and exaltation. And through your word, encounter them. Dear Christ, call them to yourself. And through your word, Lord, convict me. Convict others who trust and follow Christ of slipping back into a hybrid kind of allegiance. Oh, how we want to worship you, oh God, just you. Because you're the true one. And yet all around us there are these, these idols, these false gods. They clamor for our attention and sometimes they attract us and we don't want to give ourselves to a hybrid kind of religion. Grant us grace that we would sell out to Jesus moment by moment. And as we prepare to go to the table, 
deal with us. Would you, in a customized way, deal with every one of us according to our needs as we remember and as we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.